Today on Off the Cuff Declassified, we discuss that vile routine at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Robert Spencer from Jihad Watch joins me to discuss the history of jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. Masculinity is now considered a mental disorder at the University of Texas. I'm going to tell you all about this ridiculousness. And James Comey is downplaying, actually criticizing the House Intel report. I'll tell you why I believe he is very, very nervous about his future. The White House Correspondents' Dinner was an epic disaster. I'm sure you've seen the news on it by now, but man, did they pick the wrong person to emcee that night's events. Well, it was a woman named Michelle Wolf. Apparently, she used to be a, or still is, I don't watch Comedy Central, but she was a correspondent on Comedy Central's The Daily Show. Now, Trevor Noah is an unhinged leftist. I don't find him funny. I used to disagree with Jon Stewart. Jon Stewart, at least, is very, very talented. Michelle Wolf took to the stage an angry, mean, miserable woman, and proceeded to insult Sarah Huckabee Sanders' appearance. Now, Sarah Huckabee Sanders is one of my favorite press secretaries, not because I'm a Trump supporter, but because I think she's incredibly quick on her feet, very smart, very witty, and she very effectively controls an incredibly hostile White House press corps. She does a masterful job. The other thing I like about Sanders is that she never tries to make herself seem like some other press secretaries did, <clears throat> like she's more in the loop on certain information than she is. When she's asked about the president's personal life or things that are very classified, highly top secret, she says, hey, look, I don't know. I wasn't read into that. I don't know what happens in the residence. I don't know what happens between the president and his family. None of my business, none of your business. I also love the way she spanks down Jim Acosta from CNN pretty much daily. You would think the side of his face is sore by now from getting those whacks from Sarah from the podium. But what happened to her was disgraceful. Now, I don't know Sarah Huckabee Sanders, but I do have very close friends that are very close with her. And to a person, they tell me the same things about her. Same adjectives, witty, funny, warm, engaging. I do, uh, I have had the pleasure of meeting her parents several times, Governor Huckabee and his wife, and just very, very nice people. Quick side story. I was at a, a high dollar fundraiser down here in South Florida. The governor was keynoting and it was a very, very large house in a state, basically. And it was midday, late day, so people brought their kids. <clears throat> now, predictably, the younger kids are bored out of their minds at this political fundraiser with their parents. And nobody could find the governor and his wife. And people started to get concerned. Where's the governor and his wife? They thought maybe they got sick and they went home. Well, he finally found them. <clears throat> they were sitting in the living room and he was playing guitar for the kids. And his wife was like reading to them. They didn't care about the high net worth donors outside. They were just grandparents. Really, really nice people. A friend of mine, very good friend of mine, has traveled to Israel with Governor Huckabee, and he, he's just a warm, engaging, good guy, as I hear is Sarah Huckabee's daughter, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And it's, it's very, very sad that she had to endure these vile, vicious attacks. Now, the president wants to see an end to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. So does the left. The left wants to see an end to it because they say journalism is compromised with the White House Correspondents' Dinner. They should never be seen hobnobbing and socializing with those in politics that they're supposed to cover. But that's not the real reason, right? Because when Obama was president, they never wanted to end the WHCD. They loved it. It was an A-list event. Obama would show up and George Clooney would show up and Steven Spielberg would show up. And it was the hottest ticket in D.C. Now it's a D-list ticket. Literally, Kathy Griffin was the only celebrity of note there, and she had to show my life on the D-list. It's a horrible event. I'd never even heard of Michelle Wolf. 
So this is what I mean. Like liberals in D.C., Michelle Wolf was hilarious. And normal America's like, who the hell is Michelle Wolf? <laughs> Nobody even knew who she was. I'd never heard of this woman before the White House Correspondents' Dinner. But she got up there with a very vile and personal agenda. Now, the left wants it ended, and I'll read you some excerpts from a Washington Post piece. The left wants it ended because it, it supposedly you know, compromises their ethics. In reality, it's because it's become nothing. And now they're being beaten down by America. Their credibility is further impeached. People trust them now even less. It's really, really bad for the American left at this point. Well, it should be, though. They're very hateful people. Donald Trump and those on the right want it ended because Trump calls it embarrassing and he wants it put to rest. Trump called it, quote, an embarrassment to everyone associated with it. He tweeted this, quote, the filthy comedian totally bombed, put dinner to rest, dinner to rest or start over. Uh, now, that tweet from Trump came right after the organizers of the event, the White House Correspondents Association, released a statement. This from an NBC News story. Let me read you what Margaret Taleb, uh, I guess she's uh, one of the people who runs the association, maybe the president. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, she's the current president. I'll read you her statement. And I'll tell you why I think it's disingenuous and I don't believe it for a second. Dear members, I want to tell you how much your kind words meant to me following my personal remarks at last night's White House Correspondents' Dinner about the roots of my belief in journalism's essential role. I also have heard from members expressing dismay with the entertainer's monologue and concerns about how it reflects on our mission. Oliver Knox, who will take over this summer as our president, and I, recognize these concerns and are committed to hearing from members on your views on the format of the dinner going forward. Last night's program was meant to offer a unifying message about our common commitment to a vigorous and free press while honoring civility, great reporting, and scholarship winners, not to divide people. Unfortunately, the entertainer's monologue was not in the spirit of that mission. Every day we are working hard to advocate for our members and ensure coverage that benefits the public. And the dinner is an important opportunity to highlight and maintain our essential work. The White House Correspondents Association remains dedicated to that mission, Margaret Taylor. Now, I don't believe it. I don't buy it. I do not buy for one single solitary millisecond that Margaret Taylor and the rest of the people who run the White House Correspondents Dinner didn't have a chance to vet Michelle Wolf's comments in advance. I do not believe the White House Correspondents Association lets somebody walk up to a podium without knowing the sum and substance of what they're going to say. I just don't buy it, especially when there are people from the White House in the room, especially when international television cameras are in the room and it's a room full of reporters. It's a room full of reporters, most press heavy event in the world, literally. I don't believe for one second they didn't know. This to me is backpedaling after backlash. Now, even members of the media that have not been friendly to the Trump administration criticized Michelle Wolf, Maggie Haberman from the New York Times, possibly the harshest critic of the administration, that at PressSec, this is a tweet, obviously at PressSec of Sarah Huckabee Sanders, sat and absorbed intense criticism of her physical appearance, her job performance, and so forth, instead of walking out on national television was impressive. Now, Michelle Wolf's response to that explains very clearly why she never have been, should have been selected. Wrote, hey, Mags, all these jokes were about her despicable behavior. Sounds like you have some thoughts about her looks, though, with an emoji that kisses. Now, think about that. The entertainer, who's supposed to come up there and jab and pun, finds Sarah Huckabee Sanders' behavior in doing her job despicable. 
You're not going to tell me that the White House Correspondents Association didn't know they were hiring somebody who personally hated the Trump administration. Now, look, I'm all for comedy. I think Saturday Night Live became way too political. When something's funny, it's funny. I don't care if they're poking fun at Trump or me. I don't watch late night TV. Uh, number one, because it's not the format I enjoy. Number two, because I do this show early, so I'm typically not up that late. But I will admit who's funny and who has talent. I find Jimmy Fallon a funny guy. I find him a talented guy. And Jimmy Fallon's jabs at Trump and some of the little skits he does in videos they edit up are really, really funny. Look, I don't want to live in a country where we can't criticize our president. The founding fathers wanted us to satirize and criticize our elected officials. So Jimmy Fallon, to me, is actually a talented guy. He's a funny guy. Is he a little bit left? Yeah, he is. But are his parodies of Trump, his impersonations, the things that Trump says that Jimmy Fallon, you know, chooses to mock or make jokes, are they funny? Yeah, they're really damn funny. It's funny stuff. I find myself laughing at it when I watch it. He's talented. That's comedy. Is it controversial? Yeah. Is it a little cutting edge? Yeah. Sometimes it's a little biting? Yeah. But it's funny. It's creative. It's clever. It's witty. And it's delivered in a way that's not mean-spirited. This, what Michelle Wolf did, was mean-spirited. This wasn't meant to be comedy. Jimmy Fallon's is meant to be comedy. And sure, every comedian crosses the line. That's what comedy is. You want comedians to be social satirists and cross the line. But by the same token, know your audience, know your venue. Don't sit there, hone in on one person, and then try to degrade them that entire night because you have a visceral hatred of that person. That's what Michelle Wolf did. Now, Matt and Mercedes Schlapp. Matt Schlapp is uh, the president of the American Conservative Union. They run CPAC. He tweeted that he and his wife got up and left the dinner. They were so offended that um, uh, he and his wife left. He said, enough of the elites mocking us all. But this is, uh, this is where I, I think the um, media has a fundamental disconnect with America. They cry and they whine and they complain that America distrusts them. CNN got an award, got an award at the White House Correspondents' Dinner for a story they, they completely botched. They, they completely botched the story. It was all fake news, anonymous sources. Most of the story turned out to be false. It was about Comey and Russiagate and all that stuff. And they still got an award for the story. That's why America doesn't trust the mainstream media. They get awards for getting it wrong from their own, who then pat each other on the back. And we all know CNN got the award not for journalism, but for going out of their way to try to take down Donald Trump. It's not why you should get awards. Now, Trump is calling for an end to the embarrassing dinner. The, the Washington Post had a, uh, an editorial written by a woman named Margaret Sullivan, or an opinion piece, and she wrote, the White House Correspondents' Dinner should be the last. Now, this was never said during the Obama years. Let me read you from the Washington Post piece. It never has been a particularly good idea for journalists to don their fanciest clothes and cozy up to the people they cover, alongside Hollywood celebrities who have ventured to wonky Washington to join the fun. But in the current era, it's become close to suicidal for the press's credibility. So it's not because it's skewed and one-sided and mean-spirited and maybe it needs to be course-corrected and be more objective. No, it's because the press is now worried about their own survival. Trust in the mainstream media is low. A new populism has caught fire all over the Western world and President Trump constantly pounds the news media as a bunch of out-of-touch elites who don't represent the interests of real Americans. The annual dinner, or at least the optics of the dinner, seem to back him up. I agree with that. I completely agree with that. 
But it's not Donald Trump creating distrust in the media. The media is creating distrust in the media. When CNN and the New York Times and the Washington Post are using anonymous sources and are constantly having to correct themselves or being debunked by other smaller outlets who are using on-the-record sources and vetting their stories and adhering to the editorial process, it's the media debunking themselves. It's not Donald Trump doing any damage to the media. And, and I was surprised that, that this Margaret Sullivan said this. And while Trump rarely sets a good example for anyone, his decision to hold a campaign-style rally in Michigan on Saturday night might be an exception. I agree with her 100%. Trump got to look like a man of the people, a guy who talks the language of auto workers and waitresses, journalists, whose purported mission it is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, were meanwhile partying with their sources at the Washington Hilton in black ties. And it's true. So Donald Trump's out there in Michigan telling steel workers, I love putting you back to work. I want your families to have even more money. I want you to make more per hour. I want you to get a bigger bonus. I'm here with you. Screw those fake news elites in D.C. We're the people. Ah, they're out of touch elitism. And the people in the crowd are cheering and they love Trump. In Michigan, by the way, where Hillary ignored that Trump was never supposed to win and won. Very smart of him to go there. Kick off the 2020 campaign in the states that delivered him 2016. While the other optic is the media elites mocking Sarah Huckabee Sanders to sit there poised and gracefully in tuxedos eating very expensive dinners in the Washington Hilton. So Trump also said, quote, why would I want to be stuck in a room with a bunch of fake news liberals who hate me? I mean, you know, that's exactly why he won. Exactly why he won. And this is something the mainstream media will never understand. Trump is there. Trump is there at a, on a podium with blue-collar Americans and the mainstream media who's created their, the hatred towards themselves on their own. Had nothing to do with Trump. All Trump's doing is saying, you're here standing at the rally. I'm here with you at the rally. We're talking about your families and a bunch of media people from the New York Times, the Washington Post, to CNN, and CNN are in tuxedos right now eating dinner, looking down on you and mocking you. Now, Somebody, uh, Michael Calderon from Politico wrote, what was one of the most prestigious gigs in journalism has become a daily slog, meaning a White House correspondent. They're saying that really, though, because Trump gives them no quarter. Gone are the days of the Carter and Reagan and Clinton and Bush administrations, the Obama administration, when the media was either hostile, media was either hostile and got away with it, or it was a love fest under Obama where the media got there and patted on the head and they got their prescribed questions and they acted like good lap dogs and they did what they were told and they got invited to these parties and whoever was the most complimentary of the Obama administration got a table closest to the front and more face time with Obama and his immediate staff. Now, Margaret Taleb, the comment I read you earlier, was, is, is the uh, current president of the organization. Uh, also works with Bloomberg News and she's outgoing and new guys coming in. She wrote, quote, our dinner honors the First Amendment and strong independent journalism. And she praised the comedian, Wolf, uh, her Pennsylvania roots and her truth to power style. But that's not what happened. And as you read, she had to uh, walk that back. And one of the other things that Wolf said about Sarah Huckabee Sanders, quote, she burns facts and then she uses that ash to create a perfect smoky eye. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's lies. It's probably lies. No one was laughing. No one was laughing. No one was laughing. And the optics of it, were terrible. Now, Peter Baker, chief White House correspondent of the New York Times, said, quote, unfortunately, I don't think we advanced the cause of journalism tonight. Now, if, end quote, if it took 
Michelle Wolf making a fool of herself at the White House Correspondents' Dinner for the New York Times and, and Bloomberg and others to realize that journalists stopped advancing the cause of journalism several years ago, really decades ago, then they're never going to get it. If that's what it took for them to see, if the backlash of someone being vile and hateful and nasty and angry against Republicans, if that's what it took for them to see this, then they've got a bigger problem. Would a, would a conservative comedian have been allowed on stage? Would a conservative have been allowed, or even a moderate, have been allowed to attack Obama like that? No. If Obama had been attacked like that by a conservative comedian, the dinner would have been shut down. So both sides want the dinner shut down for different reasons. But I say no. I say no. Let the dinner go on. Let the media continue to do this to themselves. Literally, every minute it feels like there's a new content platform springing up. Outlets like The Rebel didn't exist during the Obama administration. At the end of it, they did. But, but in the heyday of it, from 08 to 2012, outlets like The Rebel didn't exist. You were still somewhat limited in where you got your news. Fox News was the only kid on the block, really. And you had Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and Glenn Beck on radio and some other conservative hosts. And fortunately, Glenn Beck has dwindled after his never-Trumpism. But you had some outlets. But now we've got all of these conservative digital outlets where we can then distribute this content on more mainstream platforms. And so outlets like The Rebel inform you you don't need The New York Times anymore. You don't need to be held hostage by a liberal press and only three or four conservative options. Now you've got many, and that's what makes the mainstream media so unhinged. They don't want you to have many out. They want you to have one. They want, if they could have their way, they'd want state-controlled media. And we saw it in the WikiLeaks emails, how Politico and the New York Times and all the other uh, liberal outlets, The Hill, were coordinating with the Clinton campaign, making sure that what they were saying was okay. They get their pat on the head because Hillary was elected. Queen Hillary was supposed to be coronated. They wanted those front tables at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. They wanted to make sure they didn't offend. So journalism is only supposed to be objective. The optics of journalism are only supposed to be we don't you know, hang out with the subjects we cover when it's conservatives, when it's liberals. They clear their stories through them. So I say, let's keep the White House Correspondents' Dinner going. Let's keep people like Joanne Reed, homophobic, hateful. Joanne Reed from MSNBC. We'll talk about her later in the week. Let's keep people like her on the air. Let's keep the White House Correspondents' Dinner going. Let's let the liberal media do what it's been doing and continue to expose itself. We live in a pretty dangerous world, and due to my law enforcement background, I often bring you stories about radical Islamic terror, and there are... A few people that are my go-to resources. One of them is joining me now. Robert Spencer is the director of Jihad Watch, and he has a new book called The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. Robert joins me now, and it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. I've been meaning to talk to you. We actually have a couple of really good personal mutual friends, and it's taken way too long to have you on. Uh, tell me a little bit about the book, and then I want to get into some of the work Jihad Watch has been doing, because... You guys are an absolute go-to resource for me as I produce the show every day. So let's talk about the upcoming book first because it seems incredibly interesting and I think a must-read for anybody that's interested in this subject matter. I would even encourage everybody in law enforcement and the military to grab a copy. They really need to understand the enemy. Yeah, absolutely, John. Thank you. Uh, this book is unique 
there is actually no other book like it. People might say that about uh, every book that comes out, but it's really true about this one. This is the first time in the English language that there has been a comprehensive history of jihad activity from the beginning, from Muhammad right up to the present day, including not just the jihad against Europe, which people have written about, but the jihad against India, which is an incredibly bloody, horrible story that people need to know in the West and don't know. And yes, I think this is a book that is going to be uh, necessary for legislators and policymakers to read because it puts everything in context. People know there are problematic passages in the Quran. People know there are problematic things that Muhammad did, but then they think, well, you know, Spain was a paradise of multiculturalism and there were periods of tolerance and peace when Jews, Christians, and Muslims lived together. I explode all those historical myths in this book, relying on chroniclers who were there, eyewitnesses, and people who were contemporaries of what happened, and show that this is an astonishingly consistent history all through from the beginning. Muslims have waged jihad against unbelievers. They're still doing it. The doctrines haven't changed. And people need to know this history because there is no indication now that anything is going to be different in the encounters of Muslims and non-Muslims today. Now, Robert, you raise a really, really interesting point. When, in your opinion, you're a scholar of this subject matter, uh, one of the most renowned, I would argue, when do you think the sanitization of history with regards to the way Muslims have treated Christians, Jews, atheists, Hindus, etc., and it's interesting you bring up India. Quick digression, a few years back I was involved in a deal, and two of the investors were Indian, one Hindu, one Christian, and they would rant about this. They would rant, it was right after 9-11 actually, this went down more than a few years ago, and they would rant that no one was talking about what Muslims have done in India, and if people only knew, the liberals in America would have a much different view of it. And I don't know if we'd ever convince the left in America to have a different view, but when do you think the sanitization of history started with regards to Islam, and this false narrative crept in that it's a religion of peace, that they've lived in tolerance with Jews and Christians and all other faiths, is this, how far does that go back? John, you know, I actually have this in the book. It goes back about 500 years. When Martin Luther, the founder of uh, the, the Protestant understanding of Christianity, he was in, engaged, of course, in a lot of attacks on the Pope and the Catholic Church. And at that time, in 1517, the Ottoman Empire, the last caliphate, was encroaching upon Europe from the east and was actually in Eastern Europe and was advancing. And Martin Luther actually said, don't go and fight the Ottomans. The Pope is even worse. And it's no good to ally with the Pope against the Ottomans. He was just engaging in intra-Christian polemic. And I think he was exaggerating a little bit because later on he did agree that, yes, we need to fight and resist the Ottomans. And there were Lutherans who joined in that. But he is the beginning of the idea that Islam is really peaceful and nothing to worry about. That wasn't his intention, but it kept going. The British then spread this same idea when they allied with the Ottomans in the middle of the 19th century to try to sell it to their people, they started to spread the idea that Islam is a religion of peace. And then, of course, we have to mention George W. Bush right after 9-11. And I think there's a real wallop in this book after you read about 14 centuries of unbroken, consistent, bloody jihad warfare. Then you have George W. Bush after 9-11 going into the mosque and saying Islam is a religion of peace. It puts it in a context that makes it really jolting that he would have been so detached from reality. Yeah, and what's always bothered me about that, Robert, is that Islam, until, at least in my lifetime, unless I, I wasn't paying close enough attention, 
Until George W. Bush started coining that phrase, religion of peace, Islam never sold itself as a religion of peace. If you go back to Malcolm X, Malcolm X sold it as a religion of discipline, a, re a stern religion, a religion where violence, in many respects, should be used, even on their own, but I never heard Islam sold as a religion of peace until George W. Bush started pushing that. I've never understood it. Was there ever a time in history where Islam pushed that narrative? No, actually, only now. And it's just a matter of deception in the West that it makes people put their guard down and think that the real problem is so-called Islamophobia. But uh, no, actually, you know, it's funny how, John, the people would say, you're going to you have Spencer on your show and he's very controversial. Nothing I say would, was ever controversial until the 1970s. All I'm saying is things that every observer of Islam, Muslim and non-Muslim, agreed upon until the 1970s. And it was then that it became dogmatically accepted in the West that Islam is peaceful. And if you say otherwise, then you're a hateful, bigoted racist. And then everybody's experience, everybody's knowledge, and even Muslims who acknowledged that it was a religion of warfare and conquest, everybody's understanding was thrown out that had gone before. But it's really ridiculous. Islam has not changed. Its doctrines are the same as they've always been. It's only in the West we've now become afraid of telling the truth about it. You know, Robert, it's uh, uh, it, it, like I said earlier, and when, when I introed you, it's, it's a travesty that I haven't had you on earlier. We haven't spoken earlier because just ideologically aligned, but I suffered as well, right? I come out of NYPD and I built my brand on law enforcement. And when I went after groups like Black Lives Matter, and what I tell you, using nothing other than FBI and U.S. Census data crime statistics, I've been suspended from Twitter, I've been called a racist, I've been called a xenophobe, I, mean, I have been, I'm a, I'm a robe-wearing member of the Klan, I mean, literally for posting graphics of the FBI UCR reconciled against U.S. Census data and certain census tracts in Chicago outlining black-on-black -black crime, the things I've been called, the death threats I've received. So those of us who use data and historical reference points somehow in the last 20 years have become the fringe. Data and science is now the fringe. Emotional knee-jerk rhetoric is now mainstream, apparently. Yeah, absolutely. As Pamela Geller says, truth is the new hate speech. Yeah, right, and exactly. So, you know, all, I, I, I'm listening to what you're saying, and I think, yeah, welcome to my world. All I've done is quote the Quran, quote Muhammad, outline right. what they say about Muhammad in the earliest Islamic texts, and now laid out the Islamic history and all of these things become hateful when I say them. You know, it's a funny thing. The Organization of Islamic Cooperation is 57 Muslim governments, and they are uh, obviously committed to Islam. And when somebody quotes the Quran, who's an imam, saying, kill them wherever you find them, that's fine. But if I quote the imam saying, look, he said, kill them wherever you find them, then the OIC will put that on its hate uh, list and say it's Islamophobia. When it's the same thing that the imam said, but it's no good for non-Muslims to notice that these things are being said in mosques in the West. You know, one of my biggest regrets in life is that I haven't yet made the Southern Poverty Law Center's hate list because I really respect and admire so many people on that list. I just, I feel like I haven't, but, but you know, we, we can joke about it, but the reality is the people that are placed on these lists are outstanding go-to sources. I mean, sure, there are some real hate mongers on those lists, but many of those names are people who simply do exactly what you say. They literally excerpt a passage from the Quran verbatim. They put it into a tweet, a Facebook post, or in a book where they, where they you know, write some context around it, and that's somehow now hateful. So what do we do? What do we do? You've been in this fight a long time. You're one of the early guys. 
calling attention to this long before many other people were even aware it was going on. How do we change the hearts and minds of Americans to show them that there actually is a threat from Islam, not just radical Islam, but that left to their own devices, mosques around this country? Look, quick digression before you answer. As I dig into this, we had an immediate situation down here in Broward County, Florida, obviously the Parkland tragedy. I've been looking at Nizar Hamza, one of Scott Israel's deputies for a long time. This guy has ties to all kinds of bad guy groups. Joe Kaufman is on the ground down here in South Florida. I have him on the show often. He gives me a lot of detail into what's going on. But if we dare talk about that, we dare talk about that we're vilified. I've been vilified by conservatives in the Broward County Sheriff's Office saying you've got it all wrong. They're, they're, they've been snowed. What do we do here, Robert? How do we start changing hearts and minds to show people that that mosque that propped up in a house on the corner has some pretty nefarious ties? It's not just people going to worship in the afternoon. Well, I, I have every confidence, actually, John, that the tide is turning. All we have to do is keep telling the truth because the truth is just reality. And reality is ultimately going to be obvious to everyone. You cannot deny it forever. And the thing about this Islam is a religion of peace business and we have nothing to worry about from these mosques and care has no links to Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood and all the other things that people take for granted nowadays. The thing is, they're so contrary to fact that they're refuted every day by the day's headlines, by people who are just, if, if people are just being alert to what's going on in the world, they will, it will dawn upon them that there is a really big problem with Islam that needs to be addressed. And so I, I think that the reason why we keep hearing this Islam is a religion of peace business is because that's the only way that propaganda succeeds. That's the only way the big lie is ever accepted by people, by constant repetition. They keep having to tell us that Islam is a religion of peace because it so obviously isn't. And so all we have to do is continue to hold fast to reality, continue to stand fast and tell the truth. And there's no way we can lose. The truth will always be victorious in the end. Right, but you'll, you'll keep saying it, and I'll keep saying it, and outlets like The Rebel and, and other uh, similar outlets, our colleagues, our competitors will keep saying it. But what do you think the tipping point is for the mainstream media to do a story? Because look, I'm an evidence-based guy, right? I was an investigator. When I look at CARE, one of the things that strikes me isn't their affiliations. I expect their affiliations. It's how easy it is to make those connections, how easy it is to put up a chart on a wall, literally, and show CARE's direct links to some pretty violent actors, some pretty radical actors. The mainstream media can easily do this. An outlet like CNN, even Fox News is reluctant to do this to the degree they should. They've got the staffs, they, they've got the resources. What is gonna be the tipping point in your opinion for the mainstream media to finally say, okay, and put up those same charts with a group like CARE and their connections as we're doing? I don't know that they'll ever be one, John. They're ideologically committed. They get a lot of money from people like Al-Walid bin Talal, the multi-billionaire Saudi investor who has a percentage of Fox, right. a percentage of many American universities. They're never going to acknowledge what their paymaster wants them to ignore. But the thing is, is that their credibility is being so widely challenged nowadays. And people, more and more people every day are waking up to the fact that from the establishment media, you're just not getting the whole truth. And they're turning it off going to the internet, finding the rebel, finding other sources where they can find the truth. And so I don't, you know, I'm not waiting for CNN to uh, start telling the truth about the jihad threat. I'm just watching as people, more and more people realize that CNN is not telling you the truth. I, you know, I, I travel all the time. Every week, practically, I'm in an airport. And for years, 
every time I would see a TV in the airports, they would be tuned to CNN. And now increasingly, they are on Fox or other networks. And CNN has lost the aura it had of being an accurate news source. And that's going to happen to all of them. It's already happening. You know, Robert, one of the things I wish could happen, and I'm the, I'm the world's biggest proponent of operational security, but one of the most effective programs, I'm sure you know all about it more than most, that was uh, ended to a degree, was the Confidential Mosque Informant Program in the NYPD. It yielded treasure troves of actionable intelligence. A very good friend of mine was one of the supervisors on the program, and I had the good fortune of working with it a little bit. I wish some of that could be declassified so the general public could see just how many threats the NYPD alone received that were valid and actionable. I think that would change, would start to change a lot of minds. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's the reason why Bill de Blasio, who owes uh, a great deal of his support to the Muslim communities in New York City, is keeping it secret. He doesn't want these things out. And probably as long as he's the mayor, they're not going to come out because he, after all, is responsible for halting that program, which was highly effective under pressure from those same Islamic advocacy groups. So if he lets that out, it's he who's going to look the worst. So uh, once we get a new mayor there, I think then we might see some things starting to change. No, I agree. And, and one of the biggest uh, PR faux pas in the history of the NYPD when they were defending that program is most people don't realize this. That program didn't have a religious test. They, we were looking for people from certain nations. Their, their religious, uh, religious affiliation wasn't even known until after they were interviewed, and there were plenty of Christians. There were plenty of, of uh, non-denominationals from those nations who had actionable intelligence on what was going on in the Muslim community, but they were living in the same community as a matter of nationality. There was no religious test on that, and it yielded such incredible actionable intelligence. We saw this with the Brooklyn College incident. We had that cop who, who was able to infiltrate a cell in Brooklyn College, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, and she was vilified for doing so. Even though she put two people in jail that wanted to bomb New York City, she was still vilified for, for daring to actually enforce the law. It's always the same, John. Islamophobia is the big problem, and the foes of jihad terror are the enemy. This is the mainstream media view. They don't enunciate it explicitly, but they always act upon it. This is the prevailing view in the nation's universities. Whenever I speak at a college or university, it's as if Jack the Ripper's coming to campus. There are uh, uh, protests and petitions and calls for me to be canceled and all sorts of uproar. But I guarantee you that in those same universities, if a Guantanamo inmate showed up and started screaming death to America in the middle of campus, he'd be celebrated as a hero. And so what happened to her doesn't surprise me at all. It happens to everyone across the board who dares to stand up against this threat. Well, no, you look, listen, and what you're saying isn't a hypothetical. Linda Sarsour literally has the red carpet rolled out. If you or Ben Shapiro show up, there are SWAT teams. Yes. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. And Linda Sarsour, uh, we now know, was instrumental in crafting Bill de Blasio and the NYPD's new policy on the enforcement of, of, of radical Islam. Linda Sarsour, a lot of people don't know this, was instrumental in crafting NYPD policy. Robert, some days I, I ask, what planet do we live in? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because this is somebody who's openly pro-Sharia, who has said that, uh, who has excused jihad terrorists, who has ties to Hamas, which is a jihad terror group. And she is working closely with de Blasio and the New York City authorities 
to make sure that Muslim communities aren't discriminated against, by which she means that they are not examined for any ties to terrorism. This is a pro this is a policy. This is an activity that is literally going to blow up in their faces. Okay, last question for you. I was running out of time. If the president called you into the Oval Office tomorrow and asked you a solution for Syria, what would you tell him? I would tell him get out and contain the problem that don't let the jihadis from there spread out to other parts of the world, including and especially the United States. But there are no good guys there. To take out Assad is to aid the Muslim Brotherhood, and to leave Assad there is to aid Iran. And so there's no solution. What we should just be trying to do is protect our allies and protect American interests in the region, but uh, we don't need to be engaging in any more of this feudal nation building that was so spectacularly a failure in Iraq and Afghanistan. I, I, can't, uh, I can't disagree with you. The book is The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. When can we get it? It's gonna be out in July, and it's available now for pre-order at amazon.com. Outstanding. Robert Spencer, director of Jihad Watch, author of The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS, like I said, it's been way too long. Should have had you on uh, much, much sooner. I hope you come back with me often. Anytime, John. Thanks very much. Thanks, Robert. Just when you think liberals and academia could not become any more ridiculous, along comes this, I don't even know what to call it, opinion piece, study, suggestion from the University of Texas's Division of Student Affairs Counseling and Mental Health Center, an article, I guess we'll call it, entitled, What is Restrictive Masculinity? Yes, according to the University of Texas uh, Counseling and Mental Health Center, masculinity is now some kind of either psychological or personality disorder. It is one of the most bizarre things I've ever read in my life. Uh, you can see the graphics on the screen here during the segment. Let me read you uh, some excerpts from this because it really is that good. What is restrictive masculinity? Voices against violence. Now, there's a lot on this page. So it's University of Texas at Austin Counseling and Mental Health Center. Uh, the top of the page says Division of Student Affairs, and there's a group called Voices Against Violence at the University of Texas, which is part of the Counseling and Mental Health Center. What is restriction, restrictive masculinity? Now, Voices Against Violence is called VAV. VAV imagines a campus where compassion, understanding, empathy, inclusion, and respect are guiding values for students to develop their own sense of masculine identity. Healthy masculinities include many behaviors rather than one singular idea of masculinity. The masculine man in me already wants, you to, punch some, wants to punch somebody in the face for this article. <laughs> However, the reality many young men on campus face is to act like a man, as if there was only one true way. For example, restrictive notions of masculinity imagine a single rigid identity that emphasizes aggression, competition with men, devaluation of women. No, that's wrong. In, in no definition, of masculinity is devaluation of women an element. In fact, it's to protect women, to provide for women, to care for women, to provide food and shelter for women. The devaluation, devaluation of women throughout, and a few tools and few tools to develop 
communication skills or emotional maturity. Well, I don't know. I make a pretty decent living communicating on air every day. <laughs> and I think I'm a pretty mature guy. I was entrusted with a gun and a badge and the ability to take people's freedoms away if I applied the law in a capricious manner at a pretty young age. I think I was pretty mature and my lack of complaints and, and history of commendations by the NYPD sort of reinforces that, that I was mature and responsible as a man. So I don't know where they're getting this. Some guy named Paul Keivel, an educator and an activist, developed the Act Like a Man box. This is great. And you can see the, the uh, you're seeing the graphic now. The Act Like a Man box which illustrates how traditional ideas of masculinity. Now, normally I don't read you word for word from an article, but this is so good I have to. Uh, into, uh, which illustrates how traditional ideas of masculinity place men into rigid or restrictive boxes that pressure men and masculine-identified individuals. So it's not just men. Now, if you're transgender but identify as a man and want to act like a traditional man, they also don't like you. If that didn't confuse you, I don't know what will. Masculine identified individuals to emulate this ideal and prevent them from developing their own emotional maturity. He says men are breadwinner. This is what this is what beta male Paul Kyvel thinks a man who acts like a man thinks a man should be. He couldn't be wrong, wrong, more wrong. Let me tell you where he's right. Let me tell you where he's wrong. Men are breadwinners, yes. Violent, no. Mean, no. Bullies, no. Tough, should be. Angry. I'm a pretty happy guy. Active, yes. Strong, yes. Successful, you should be. In control, should be. Over women, well, no. I love women. Most men do. You protect them and take care of them. Men, uh, I'll go through the feelings in the middle second, but men have no emotion. No. Stand up for themselves, yes. Yell at people, if warranted. Can take it, absolutely. Don't make mistakes. Absolutely not. I make a million mistakes. You don't know how many times I fumble on air and my editors have to correct it <laughs> and, and edit the show to bring you a seamless product. We all make mistakes in life. We're human. Don't cry. Look, I've never been a real crier. I did cry when my dog died. I love, I love animals. So yeah, that, I was pretty broken up over that. Take charge. Yeah, men should take charge. Push people around. No, in fact, men will stand up to those who push people around. Men will stand up to violent, mean, angry bullies. This is a weird one. Know about sex. Know about sex. Well, I hope if you're over like 15 or 14 or whatever, kind of know a little something about the birds and the bees. I, I don't under even understand what that guy's talking about. Men don't back down. I agree. Men take care of people. Absolutely. Why is that a negative? Feelings. I don't even understand how this fits in. Confused, angry, scared, ashamed, alone, stupid, powerless, vulnerable, revenge, hopeless, worthless. What I really think is going on here is Paul Kyvel developed a box that essentially outlined his own conflicted self because I don't know any guy that would fit into this box. Seriously. Some of my friends are the most sensitive people you will meet who, if they look at a pic of their own kids today, love their children so much they'll break down in tears, but made millions on Wall Street. They were absolute sharks in business. But to their wife and children, they are the most gentle, soft-spoken, overcome-with-emotion person to their family. I don't know the weirdos he's talking about. I have no idea. In fact, 
my friends, the men I know, I mean, look, there's exceptions in every rule, but many of them are family men who adore their families, who their wives are equal partners in everything. And in fact, one of my friends, his wife rules the roost. They have one of the best relationships I've ever seen. They butt heads. They're both very strong personalities. They, they're like this. They get along, but then they butt heads and they argue. I don't know what this guy's talking about. Patterns of restrictive masculinity. Let's read a call. Unhealthy masculinity can restrict the emotional development of students. I'm just reading through these at random. Oh, oh, yes. Uh, unhealthy masculinity, restrictive masculinity will lead to sexual assault and other forms of abuse and violence. And it's often ignored or condoned by believing that boys will be boys. Really? I arrested plenty of men for sexually abusing women and few criminals made me happier to slap handcuffs on them except the sexual abuses of children. Those were the only ones who edged out those who sexually abused women. Yeah, and both were just as vile. But I had a special uh, place in my heart for pedophiles. and There was a special place in hell for them with adult rapists coming in a tick, tick behind. Believe me, they got no, they got no quarter from me. Unhealthy masculinity works by excluding students who are judged not to measure up the values of real men. No, Kyval, that's the animal kingdom. That's what we are as creatures on this earth. The big lion gets to take over the pride, okay? The craftier fox gets the food for the pups in the den. If you're bigger, stronger, or smarter, you'll win. The more competitive, you're more competitive, you'll win. To prove who is a real man means proving who is not a real man. I just think this guy was bullied and picked last for dodgeball. Unhealthy masculinity works to exclude any femininity from a masculine identity. It'd be excluded anyway. I'm a traditional guy. Emotion is not femininity. Having a woman go get the car for you in the rain or hold the umbrella and the door for you when it's pouring, yeah, that's femininity, and it shouldn't happen. In other words, man up, despite what this moron tells you. Now we go through some myths. This is great. Myth. Men have uncontrollable sexuality. No man has ever said that. But yes, it is a myth. But only this weirdo freak would think that men would believe that. Myth. Men should be fiercely independent. Well, a man should be independent. A man should be able to go out there and without help from anyone else, provide for himself and the people he cares about. That's the definition of a man. That's... That's how we've evolved. That's how we were created. That's in our DNA. Myth, men are naturally aggressive because emotions are restricted. No, men are naturally aggressive because we're the species that's supposed to protect the women and children. Masculinity is only heterosexual. Now, this one, very confusing. Let me read you the whole thing. Often, masculinity has to be proven through heterosexual relationships. It may create pressure in men to have a heterosexual relationship and create anxiety if this is not the case. This marginalizes male students who are part of the LGBT community as well as female students who wish to identify as masculine. That's kind of dumb because I have a couple of gay friends. One was a cop, one was in the military, and you wouldn't even know they were gay. It's not an affront to the LGBT communities of masculine guys who put themselves in harm's way who just happen to be attracted to the same sex. So wrong again, Paul. Masculinity is the opposite of femininity. Not a myth. That's, that is a factually and scientifically accurate statement that this moron is calling a myth. Now, 
it goes on and on and on. And then there's a whole gender and sexuality chart with rainbows and different color hearts and uh, uh, mitochondrial DNA strands. And, oh, it'll make your head hurt. But let it suffice to say that the University of Texas just contorted itself to prove that men shouldn't act like men. This further goes to the feminization of men and really the downfall of society if we let this happen. I encourage you to read this. I encourage you to read it. You'll uh, be able to get the URL in this segment. We'll put it up. If not, I'm going to put this out on my Twitter, at John Cardillo. And I encourage you to mock this as relentlessly as possible and share that mockery far and wide. So it's not enough that James Comey is embarrassing himself more and more in each interview. It's not enough that he's been criminally referred to the Department of Justice for prosecution for, of course, leaking classified FBI information to his friend, a Columbia professor, who he found out was also a special government employee on the FBI payroll. 35,000 employees at the FBI. They couldn't find somebody to do a job that Comey's friend couldn't do. So his buddy got special status. So he's been criminally referred by 11 members of Congress for leaking classified information. He's under investigation by the Department of Justice, Office of Inspector General, Office of Inspector General. We fully expect another criminal referral on that. He's making a fool out of himself night and day, has painted himself as a horrible liar, contradicted his own statements. And now, Washington Examiner story here, James Comey calls House Intel report clearing Trump in Russian election meddling, quote, a political document. Hearing James Comey, who admitted while on his book tour on multiple media outlets that the reason he chose not to send Hillary's case to the DOJ for grand jury referral was because it was a politically charged case. And if Loretta Lynch didn't send it to a grand jury, she would be irreparably damaged. Everything he did was through the lens of politics. The irony in him saying that the House Intel Committee committee is acting politically. So he says, uh, he calls it a political document, and he, and he says, quote, about the report, that is not my understanding of what the facts were, meaning no, no collusion with Russia. That is not my understanding of what the facts were before I left the FBI, and I think the most important piece of work is the one the special counsel is doing now, end quote. Now, we know that Comey leaked these documents. We know that Comey leaked information about the dossier to, uh, as the catalyst for a special counsel This is a do-over for Comey. He's a disgruntled, fired guy who's making a fool of himself. Now, the House Intel Committee wrote an exhaustive 250 or 250 pages, give or take about 15, 20 pages. I forget the exact numbers in the 240s or the 260s. Very comprehensive report on the investigation into Russian uh, uh, interference in the election. We know they meddled. Russians meddle in elections. Meddling is not collusion. It's not collusion. If I rob a bank, it doesn't mean the bank manager was in on it with me. Two separate issues. Russia stepped into our election. Too many people are confusing that uh, with them being in cahoots with the Trump campaign when they did it. That's not been proven. In fact, it's been disproven. Mueller's now over a year hasn't been able to prove a thing. So that tells me one of two things. There was no collusion, which is what I firmly 110% believe, or Mueller has the worst investigators in the history of law enforcement, which I don't believe because he's got some very talented people on his team, albeit very biased people. So you've got very talented and biased people who still can't find anything on Trump because there's nothing there. 
So Comey is, of course, uh, you know, out there ranting and raving and acting like a little baby, a crybaby. And he says that politicization has, quote, wrecked the committee and it damaged relationships with the FISA court, the intelligence communities. It's just a wreck, end quote. No, Comey, you did that. Your bias did that. Andrew McCabe's bias did that. Loretta Lynch's bias did that. Eric Holder's bias did that. John Brennan's bias did that. Peter Stroke's bias did that. Lisa Page's bias did that. Should I keep going? Hillary Clinton's bias did that. Not wreck the relationship with the FISA court. The House Intel Committee has acted honorably and comprehensively. Now, you could say, well, Cardillo, you're a partisan. You're not objective. You're a partisan. But it's not me saying it. Because when a Republican-run House Oversight Committee cleared Hillary Clinton of wrongdoing in Benghazi, the left, James Comey's allies, were out there saying, Republicans in Congress on a Republican-led committee cleared Hillary of wrongdoing in Benghazi. That's the final word. That was an honorable committee that did its job honorably, that did its job comprehensively. There's nothing there, conservatives. Even Republicans in the House cleared Hillary. Well, many of those same Republicans clear Donald Trump of Russia collusion. Now, all of a sudden, Republicans in the House are tarnished and tainted and they've wrecked the committee and it's politicized. Homie and the left sound like absolute morons. They sound like absolute morons. Look, this is all complete hysteria, fear, because their house of cards is crumbling. Their house of cards is crumbling and it's going to come crashing down on top of them. I predict, when I look at all of this, I am going to start easing back from my criticisms of Attorney General Jeff Sessions. I'm hearing some rumblings. I'm watching the recommendations by OIG for Andrew McCabe's prosecution. I'm watching OIG investigate investigate um, James Comey and many others. I'm starting to put some puzzle pieces together, but I haven't vetted them. And I don't have sources that I can bring you yet. So I'm not even going to tell you my speculation, except to say I'm easing up on my criticism of Jeff Sessions, and I'm becoming, and I'll bring you more as I get more. I don't want to bring you something that I'm not 100% convinced of, that I can't vet, that my editors can't vet. But just my own personal opinion, from what I'm seeing, what I'm piecing together, what I'm hearing through the lens of experience, I'm becoming slightly cautiously optimistic that some very bad actors might actually face justice for what they've done. And of course, I will bring you those stories as soon as more information, more valid sources, more information becomes available. But one thing is sure now, James Comey is on a backpedaling tour. <clears throat> He's trying to protect himself, trying to cover his own ass because he does not want to be prosecuted for what appears to be highly illegal leaks. Even Trey Gowdy has said that James, Comey defini def James Comey's definition of a leak is everyone else's definition of a felony. I rarely agree with Trey Gowdy these days, but I'll tell you what, on this one, I do. I think James Comey broke the law, and I think James Comey needs to be prosecuted. Same time, General Flynn's plea is vacated, his charge is dismissed with prejudice. James Comey took FBI work product, smuggled it out of the FBI, leaked it to an uncleared person who leaked it to the New York Times. That is the very definition of a crime, and James Comey, that case would be placed before a grand jury and James Comey prosecuted like any other American would.